We're glad you're here this morning. We are studying the book of 1 Peter, and if you would, take your Bibles and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'd like to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Father, we come to you this morning and ask for your forgiveness Forgiveness for failing to trust you as we should. Lord, forgiveness for being absorbed with ourselves. Forgiveness for anger toward others who are made in your image. Lord, forgiveness for worshiping the gifts while forgetting the giver. But now this morning, we come to you together to be renewed by truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Well, we've been looking at this passage, 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 25, for a few weeks now, and um, we are focusing this morning on verses 22 through 25. We know that the word love in our culture means a lot of things, and that in and of itself is not necessarily bad. We use the word love for all kinds of different uh, realms of affection, we can mean it as really deep love, intimate, caring for somebody. We can mean, uh, use the word love as self-sacrificial. We can use the word love for uh, romantic interests. We use the word love for um, a, a sandwich that we really like to order. I love a turkey and Swiss cheese sandwich. We use that word all the time for all kinds of different things. And we know what we mean by the context in which we're using the, the, the word love. And our culture, I think, understands, does experience, I should say, true love. I don't think that a person necessarily has to be a Christian to know what love is or experience love or feel love. 
But there is a kind of love that is distinct to the people of God. Or I should say that love in a certain way is distinct to the people of God. Because even though the two blooms might look the same, doesn't mean that the roots are in the same soil. Our love for each other is rooted in the soil of what God has done in our lives. To love is the essence of the Christian life. Jesus himself said, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's John 13, which Jesus is at the Last Supper the night before he is crucified. And this is his last charge to his disciples, that they should love one another. The Apostle Paul not only says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have not love, I am nothing, but he also says in Romans chapter 12, let love be genuine, love one another with brotherly affection, that's verses 9 and 10, and Paul also says the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, Romans 13 verse 8. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Well, Peter also has much to say about love. Chapter 3, verse 8 He will tell us to have brotherly love. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And here in chapter 1, the command to love one another is the last in a series of four commands to right conduct that is consistent with our new identity, with our new birth as the people of God. It is this new birth that identifies us as the people of God, being born again, and that makes us distinct from the world. It is what makes us exiles. If we are exiles in the world, because we have been born again, and because we have received an indestructible inheritance, because we have been promised a future salvation, because we have been uh, promised reward for our faith, then we are to live lives of hope. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you. We are to live a life of holiness. Verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. We are to live with A right fear of God, God God-fearing. Verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear because the one whom we call father is also judge. And now in verse 22, we are commanded to a life of love. Love one another. So Peter explains 
how we are to live a life of love. He commands us to live a life of love by explaining first what led us to love each other, then how we must love each other, and lastly, why we can love each other. So this fourth command then, love one another. What led us to love each other? We find this at the beginning of verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now, Peter is talking about conversion. He's talking about becoming a Christian. This is what he means by obedience to the truth. To trust in Jesus alone for salvation is to obey or to submit to the gospel. The New Testament talks in these terms in other places. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says that he is an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. Romans 16, 26. So at the very beginning of the letter, Paul makes this statement in Romans chapter 1 to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. And at the very end of the letter, he says that, pre- that the preaching of Jesus Christ brings about the obedience of faith. And again, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches, what, how, and, and the, the people who hear him, the people of Israel gathered in the city of Jerusalem for Pentecost, they hear Peter confront them that they have crucified their own Messiah. They are cut to the heart and they cry out, what must we do to be saved? And what does Peter say in response? Repent and be baptized. That is a command. How can you repent and believe and be baptized and not obey the command? And you can see how obedience of faith is made real. So when you became a Christian, you obeyed the truth. And in obeying the truth, Peter says, you purified your soul. The result of conversion was a cleansing of your soul from the guilt of sin and also the contamination of sin. So sin, our sin against God is often seen as uh, in a ledger. It counts against us. Because of our sin, we owe God. And it's a payment we cannot make. The only payment that we can make for our sin and rebellion against God is death. And even that doesn't cover it. That's just the judgment. But there is also a contamination from sin. So forgiveness takes that record and it blots it out. I no longer have guilt before God. I no longer have any debt because of my sin that I must try to repay to God, a debt I can't repay anyway. But if it were left there, my record would be blotted out but I would still be contaminated because I have already sinned, even if my record is blotted out. But salvation, forgiveness, includes a cleansing, a purification. This is why John says in 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
It is dealing with that contamination that this cleansing or this purification is talking about. And so when Peter says that you have purified your soul through the obedience to truth, he is saying that in coming to the gospel and coming to Jesus Christ in faith and being obedient to that command to repent and believe and be baptized, that you have brought upon yourself a cleansing, a purification process that deals with the contamination of sin. And it's been cleansed. Now, the soul, when he says you have purified your soul, it can mean the whole self. And certainly, Peter means here the whole person. But he is emphasizing that this cleansing is not ceremonial. It isn't a ceremony that's performed and doesn't reach the heart, doesn't reach the inside, the condition of the heart. He wants to make sure that we understand that what happened when we obeyed the truth, when we came to Christ, that what happened was something that was real and deep and dealt with the heart. It dealt with the human condition. That includes our physical bodies and our beings as well. You're not just a Christian on the inside. You're a Christian on the outside also. But you can't become a Christian just by changing the outside. You can't come to Christ. You can't be converted. You can't be transformed by just doing behavioral, uh, behavioral modification. There has to be something changed, and you and I can't change that. Only God can change that. And that's part of this cleansing. It's something that God does. But this purification happens on the inside, and that's why he uses this word soul. So by obeying the truth, you have been cleansed. You have been decontaminated from your former sin for the goal of a sincere brotherly love. It's what this little word for means here. You having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And this brotherly love is a, a word that's familiar to us because we have a city in the United States, named for it, that is Philadelphion. And that's the word, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's the word here in the Greek, it's Philadelphion. It is this uh, love and affection for someone that you know that you are in a relationship with. It's something that you can know with family. It's a kind of love you can know with uh, friends. That we have been saved, we have been converted for that as a goal. And it's sincere. And the word sincere here is the word without hypocrisy. A hypocrite, the word technically, referred to someone who wore a mask. It's someone who is something different on the inside than they are on the outside, who might act duplicitously at times. They say one thing, but they act a different way. Those would all be examples of hypocrisy. It really meant, like I said, wearing a mask. So when Peter says a sincere brotherly love, he means a love without a mask, a love that is not duplicitous in any way. It's genuine. It's real. 
So what has led us to loving each other then in this way is the cleansing from sin. Being cleansed puts us on the right footing. It puts us on the right grounds to love each other affectionately and sincerely. In other words, because we have obeyed the truth, having obeyed the truth, having purified our souls by obeying the truth, all the barriers, all of the obstacles that would hinder us from a sincere, maskless, non-hypocritical, brotherly love have been washed away by bowing our knees to the gospel and receiving forgiveness and cleansing, which is one goal of our salvation. So what has led us to loving each other? It is this, that we have, by obeying the truth, been already, we are in a state of having been purified, having been cleansed. That has led us to loving each other. Secondly, Peter tells us how we must love one another, how we must love each other. Love each other earnestly from a pure heart. Now, this word love is the word that most of us think of when we think of love, and that's agape, and that's a a word for love that we use often, and we talk about because it's the most common word for love, and the the Uh, one of the, I should say, best-known Christian Bible verses in the world is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. For God agape, this is that word. And it is a different word then than Peter just used, Philadelphia, and I think Peter uses this word as the command. When he commands love, he uses this word because it is the decisive love. This is the love we can have for people we don't know or people we know. It's a love that we can have for family, but we can also have it for strangers You wouldn't usually use the word phileo, from which Philadelphia, brotherly love, you wouldn't use that word for someone you didn't know. This is a love that we can have for friends, but we can also have for enemies. This is the all-encompassing love. It is a love that sacrifices and puts others first. It is a love that transcends what we feel. It is not devoid of feeling as though you can love somebody with this kind of love and you don't have to feel anything, or I should say that you won't feel anything, but it doesn't depend on that feeling. It doesn't depend on a mood or a feeling of love. It's not love without emotion, but it is an emotion that acts. It takes action. It is decisive love that acts even when it doesn't feel like it. And when I think of this kind of love, I think of moms, frankly. Moms who get up in the middle of the night to to, uh, feed 
an infant or to help a sick child, nobody feels like getting up in the middle of the night and cleaning up puke. But anyone who's a parent has done it. That's agape love. That is the kind of love that sacrifices that doesn't feel like getting up in the middle of the night, but loves anyway. It's a love that that is decisive. So Peter, when then, when he commands us, love one another, he is saying, love decisively. Love as an act of your will. And love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In other words, with fervor, with passion, and genuinely. It's almost as if Peter's saying, when he says love one another earnestly, it's like he's saying love each other without qualifiers and without reservation. There is no such thing as I'll love you if. I'll love you if you do this. I'll love you if you change in this way. I'll love you if you love me back. I'll love you as long as you are making progress. That is an unconditional love. Now, in our world, unconditional love is also spoken of very popularly, isn't it? You'll hear that, unconditional love. And our our world understands the importance of unconditional love. Though I think our usage at large has kind of drifted into becoming a synonym like tolerance. Unconditional love very often in our culture means we don't call anybody out for being wrong. Unconditional love, if I have unconditional love for you, that means I'll let you live your life however you want to live it. And I don't exercise any kind of true love that would say, that's wrong, that view is dangerous, the way you're living is selfish, the way you're living will bring judgment eventually. But there is a right unconditional love, and that is a loving of somebody else, even when, from at least from your perspective, they haven't deserved it. They've wronged you. They are obnoxious. They are lost. They have disappointed. Whatever it might be. This is the kind of love that says, I'm sorry, that doesn't say, I'll love you if. There's no conditions. That's what he means by earnestly. Be all in to love each other. We should bring the kind of energy to loving each other that we bring to rooting for our favorite sports teams. I had the blessing of going to a Seahawks game a few weeks ago. They lost, unfortunately. Okay. But what a blast it was to cheer and to scream. I can't quite do that in my living room. I can cheer, but not at the volume that I can in CenturyLink Field. To let loose with a scream with 60,000 other people who are screaming at the same volume. 
That's what Peter means by earnestly. He means love each other with that kind of energy. Like we root for our favorite teams. That's the kind of energy we're to bring and exert in loving each other. So how we must love each other. How, um, first of all, Peter tells us what led us to love each other. It's this being cleansed from sin, being decontaminated from sin because we've come to the gospel, because we've obeyed the truth. Secondly, how we must love each other. We must love each other earnestly from a pure heart. Lastly, Peter explains why we can love each other. Why we can love each other. Since you have been born, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Once again, Peter highlights our new birth. He did this earlier in chapter one. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us new birth. The Holy, uh, this is, Normally, the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, giving us new life, giving new life to our dead spirits. But instead of it being the work of the Holy Spirit here, it is the work done by the living and abiding word of God, which is the imperishable seed that he's talking about. So the picture is this. Your heart and mine are dead and barren soil. They are unable to bring any life, anything living of value out of them. They are unable to produce anything. God takes a seed, the seed of the gospel, and he plants it into your heart and into my heart, into our lives And that living, indestructible seed brings life where there was only barrenness. That's the picture. It is imperishable seed, this living and abiding word of God, because it cannot be uprooted. It cannot be stopped from growing. It endures. It abides What would perishable seed be? Perishable seed, I don't think, just means stuff that perishes, like silver and gold and money and possessions. Those things are certainly perishable. But perishable seed would be, I think, falseness, lies, deceptions, like You are autonomous. You are your own boss. You are the captain of your own soul. That is perishable seed. That is the kind of dead seed that the world plants into us. And it cannot bring life. What about naturalism? All that exists is the world that you can see, touch, hear, smell, taste. That's it. That's all we have. There is no God. There is no eternity. We are a a speck in the universe. We are specks on a speck in the universe. That's all we are. Fatalistic, deterministic. 
We don't answer to anybody. We are basically the highest form of animal life that there can be, or at least that we've seen so far. That is perishable seed. The accumulation, not just silver and gold can't buy my soul, but just the idea that I can be filled, that I can be happy and satisfied in life by accumulating that is perishable seed. And the list could go on. There's lots of perishable seed. There is only one imperishable seed. And that is the word of God. And now Peter expands on the permanence and the power of God's word. And he does this by quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now the, ba- the basic point, of course, is that human life and all of its, its glory, all that we accomplish, all that we celebrate ourselves for, all of these things are fragile and fleeting. None of them last. All of our art, our great advances in technology, our discoveries, our legacies, all that we boast in is utterly incapable of keeping us from death and then judgment. We may even be able to prolong life We might even be able to save life at an earlier age. I'm amazed at how little and how premature babies, even weeks and weeks, born early, can be sustained and live and flourish. Those are blessings from God in our science and our medical fields, despite our rejection of him. But all of these still end up showing how we are completely helpless as a race. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Forever. It is sure and trustworthy and indestructible. And anything produced by it, anything fed by its life is also sure and indestructible. And so if it is the word of the Lord that remains forever that has been planted in you as imperishable seed, that seed gives you immortality. It makes you indestructible and me. But there's more. Because these words of Isaiah 46 7 and 8 are part of the prophecy in Isaiah that predicts the coming of the Messiah, the Savior King, and his forerunner. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries 
in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What is remarkable about these words is that Isaiah proclaims them to God's people as they are being taken off into captivity, into exile. And the prophecy is spoken as though their exile is already over. You have already, your sins are forgiven. You've already received double for your sins from the hand of the Lord. But they're just heading off into captivity, 70 years of exile in Babylon. And yet the Lord is saying his judgment is already at work, it's already happened, it's already in motion, and he is speaking as though it has already been completed because he is giving them hope. He is giving them a promise, a promise for them to sustain them while they are in captivity. While they are in exiles, it's a promise of salvation. It is a promise of a future savior who would come so that no matter what hardships they might face in their sojourn, no matter what hatred and rejection they will face from a people and a culture and a system that is not their own in which they are strangers God's words of promise hold them fast. And his promises are more durable and more trustworthy than all the kingdoms of the world which wither like grass. That's why it begins with comfort, comfort to my people. Peter is making a point, isn't he, by taking these words. And applying them to us. But there's more. Because these promises of a Messiah, these promises of a salvation, were meant to keep the people of God being the people of God. They were meant to keep them and preserve their identity as strangers and exiles. They could not be in exile and cling to the promises of God and at the same time become like the Babylonian culture around them. They would have to do one or the other. And so these promises are given to sustain them so they can go, God has left us, God has forsaken us, and we might as well just become like them. We might as well worship the gods they worship, we might as well live the way they live. 
No, God has promised to save us. He has promised to come, and there will be someone. The Lord will come, and he will be announced by somebody. These promises were meant to keep them, to preserve them. And here's the thing. They were to, what? Set their hope fully on these promises. They were to orient their lives in exile around the promise that there would be someone who would come, a savior king. They were to live holy lives in the midst of their captivity. They were to fear God Live in fear of him. And they were to love one another. They were to love one another as God's people in exile. And this love then, here's the thing. The love kept the elect community intact. So Peter commands us here to love one another earnestly, not just as a distinct Christian way of living as a distinct Christian virtue, but because by loving each other earnestly, we preserve our identity as God's people in the face of a hostile exile. This is, in some senses, survival. Loving one another earnestly is a way of preserving us as God's people. Us preserving one another, so to speak, if you will, by loving each other in exile. Now, what is this word then? The word of God, this imperishable seed that gives us new life, that enables us to love each other. He tells us right here at the end of verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel, the good news, it's the same word. It could have been translated, preaching of the gospel. It is the gospel, the full promises of God revealed. And we know more and have more promise to us with greater clarity than anyone who heard Isaiah proclaiming Isaiah chapter 40. We have all of the meaning unpacked for us in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the full promise of God revealed that is the imperishable seed that God has planted into you and to me that has given us new life, that has made us born again, and that enables us to love each other. That is how we can love one another. And the gospel's promises are living and abiding. Now, how well do we love each other at Crossway? Well, I don't know how I, as an individual, could evaluate or quantify an answer to that question. I am continually, I'll say this, I am continually encouraged and blessed by the love that I witness in this body, the reconciliation, the sacrifice, the generosity that I see at Crossway Fellowship. So I can say 
like Paul does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you, remembering before our God and Father your labor of love. I'm blessed by that, and I'm grateful for it. Some churches, some church cultures, frankly, are cold. They just are. We're not that way. And in some ways, I think that's, we don't have a lot of, I'll use this term loosely, I'll qualify it, all right, but a lot of fringe people. We don't have a core group of people at Crossway and then fringe people and lots of fringe people who come for a show or a production or whatever motivation there might be. Not all of them necessarily bad. And we, because of that, I think we're a smaller body. But because we are warm, you can't be anonymous. It's hard to be anonymous at Crossway. Now, that doesn't mean somebody can't slip through the cracks. That happens occasionally. We don't know where a person is. We haven't seen a person in a while. We might not know everything that's going on in everybody else's lives. We're not that small as a church. And we have to continue to work at that. But Crossway Fellowship is a warm church. I think we're open to people. I think people are welcome here. And we need to continue to be that way. Okay. But we are still being conformed to the image of Christ, aren't we? There are a couple of things then that I just want to point to real quickly to be on guard against. Just two things that, that sit on my mind and heart, okay? It's two small, or I shouldn't say small, I should say subtle, a couple of subtle things that will eat away at earnest love if we are not on guard against them, right? The first is this, nursing small offenses. Nursing small offenses, I think we are ready most of the time to forgive large things, big offenses. We look at that and we see how Jesus has forgiven us and we look at the, the, the weight of our own sin, our own debt, our own need for forgiveness and cleansing and big offenses, large offenses, we go, Jesus forgave me, I need to forgive you. But it's the small ones, it's the little ones that kind of nag at us and eat at us that we don't deal with as head-on as we should. Instead of giving the benefit of the doubt, instead of overlooking them, casting them off, we remember them and we hang on to them. And it may be something as simple as um, you know, someone didn't greet us in the way that we thought they should. Or someone forgot about this, this thing that we thought was important and they didn't treat us or whatever it was the way that we felt they should. It could be myriads of examples, but you know what I'm talking about when I talk about small offenses. And that can be in our homes, in our marriages, in our friendships, but at large in the life of the church, these small offenses, if we do not deal with them, by either talking with someone about them and reconciling in some way, or by, as I believe Peter says in chapter four, verse eight, covering over them with love and just saying, you know what? It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I'm gonna love them anyway, even if they were to never apologize or never know or acknowledge it. But nursing small offenses will eat away at earnest love. And the second thing is, and this list could be long, 
okay? I'm just hitting on two that are at the top of my own heart, my own mind, okay? Nursing small offenses, and the other is this, isolation through distraction. Isolation through distraction. I'm talking about a cultural tidal wave that has swept us into preoccupation with our devices and our entertainment. Now, I'm not against technology. I like technology. I use technology. You'll see me using my smartphone to check scores of the games or where this is on sale or whatever it is. Okay? Very powerful tools. I love that I can have my Bible in my pocket wherever I go. And that it doesn't even, t- all I gotta do is put a couple buttons, push a couple of buttons to get to any passage in my Bible. Those are great things. The fact that I can plug in something or even not plug it in, use Bluetooth and hear the Bible read or other books or music or whatever it is. These are very powerful things. But you all know as well as I do that we become focused right here. That becomes our world. Our relationships become social media relationships, which are fake most of the time anyway. How many people really put in their social media what they really are going through? And when they do, don't we go, that probably wasn't appropriate. (laughs) Or they put up a facade in which everybody else looks like their lives are happy and mine isn't. Because all you can do is look at how everyone else's lives look awesome. Their families look awesome. The pictures they put up are the great pictures And you're going, oh my gosh, my life's a wreck. But we have entertainment at our fingertips everywhere. Every device can stream something wherever we are. And we are quickly becoming a culture that is in the midst of people, but looking at a device to sustain us. It's how we handle awkward moments, isn't it? It's a conversation that's going on around us. Okay, I got to check my email. Ding. Oh, excuse me. Got a text. It's the hardest thing. It's hard to uh, carry on a conversation with someone over lunch without a phone going off. Sometimes those things are urgent. They're necessary. Other times we just need to turn it off, ignore it. It's a constant. But this isolation, I become my own world a world unto myself in which everything is defined by this device, whatever that device might be, isolates me from people. It isolates me from an encounter with another person created in the image of God. I don't think that we really get the image of God that he has put in every human being through a screen. You just can't. And it doesn't mean you can't communicate. You can't really get to know somebody. We can get to know somebody just from letters. Think about before we had screens and everything was written on paper. Letters were actually mailed through the mail. You could get to know somebody because thought and content can be communicated in those ways. But it is not the same as an ongoing day-to-day encounter with people. 
And if we are not on guard, this isolation through distraction, entertainment, social media will eat away at earnest love. Not because it's sin in and of itself, but because it replaces and displaces the capacity to love each other earnestly. So Peter's point is this then. If you have overcome the perishable by being born again by the imperishable seed, then you are freed to love. You are freed to love. Let us put ourselves in the path of obedience to love one another earnestly. Let us love one another earnestly.